God, we thank you so much for your providence and the way you work. Uh, thank you for relationships that you build. Thank you for this man, for his wife, Judy, and their family. Thank you for um, how you've established them here. Uh, we pray, Lord, uh, for the strength that they're going to need for the ministry that's ahead. We pray for um, insight and vision and direction. Uh, we pray for gospel opportunities and openings. Uh, we pray for uh, all kinds of blessing through the ministry that you've called them to. And help us to be supportive of them as well in this process. And, and now we turn our hearts over to you in this time that you administer to us in your word and through your word and through Neil um, to help us to understand this important uh, aspect of your creation uh, a little bit more uh, deeply uh, today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. That's awesome. Appreciate that. I, I really appreciate the definition of what a district superintendent is because I've been trying to figure it out. And I think Andrew just summed it up for me really well. And by the way, if you're new around here, this is Pastor Andrew Hoffman. You might not even know him, so let me, while we're doing introductions. So yeah, we got caught in traffic this morning. We're living in San Francisco, and uh, we just happened to move in the week of Beta Breakers. No one told us. Come on, people. Feed us this information, right? So we're, we're stuck in traffic. We're trying to find the, the only way out of town, and everyone's finding the only way out of town, right? And so we got here like three, four minutes after the service started. Um, anyway, it's fun. We're, we're excited. It's, it's wild. It's crazy, but we're really excited about, about where we live and what God's already doing, and we're just thrilled about that. Um, we're doing a uh, a message today on the family and family series and all that kind of thing. And, and, and I, I want to say this kind of in advance, just because of where I'm heading, it's going to sound a little strange uh, where I'm heading. Um, so let me just say this. I am uh, in love with my family. And I'm in love with the family, just kind of in general, right? Um, my daughter actually is here. And her son, Emily, raise your hand. Just kind of wave like that. Gavin, raise your hand. There you go. There they are. Yeah. She's an interior decorator by gifting and passion and vision and whatnot, so we actually flew them out here to decorate our apartment for us and, and just to kind of be able to be the first ones to enjoy what life in San Francisco is about and to just get that reconnection with family again, too, right? And so we've been having fun this weekend, and uh, they leave tomorrow, but it's been awesome to be with them. Anyway, I say all of that just to say that, by the way, that Judy's right next to them, too. We should say hi to Judy. Yeah, there she is. Okay. And you met Judy last week. So anyway, family, right? Awesome. Really cool. So now we're going to talk about some crazy words that Jesus spoke about the family as a way to ease in to what it might mean to be a family, the family of God, as well as a nuclear family, an extended family, a church family, married, not married, whatever. There's that family thing that, that is there for us to determine and to Consider Now, it'd be logical if I introduced Judy and I a little bit more even. I'm going to save that off till the very end, but here's what I'd like to say. <clears throat> Sermon series on the family are a tricky deal because there's rules that you have to follow when you're talking about the different aspects of family in the church atmosphere. Anyway, I've noticed over 30 years of pastoring and preaching and so forth. So, for example, if you're going to preach about mothers, especially if it's on Mother's Day, you've got to be a good boy. Okay, you got to be really nice. You got to be careful and honoring and loving, and you got to make sure that they feel and receive our applause and care. Flowers are a good touch. We covered that. That was good. 
You've got to make sure you do all that kind of stuff because it's only one day a year is Mother's Day, right? I mean, every other day of the year is Kids' Day. <laughs> one day a year, moms, right? That's what you get. So we've got to do that one right because we need to give them flowers. We need to read Proverbs 31 and tell them that's who they are. Judy alluded to that last week. Never mind. Read it and you'll understand what I'm saying. Call them an excellent woman, you know, all of that. Now, Father's Day, that's altogether different. And we started on Mother's Day. We're going to end it on Father's Day. And that's a completely different story. I don't know if you noticed that. It gets overlooked sometimes. Not that I'm resentful in any way at all about that. I'm okay. But a lot of men just want to be left alone. So, in fact, Father's Day, one of the greatest gifts you can give dad is just leave me alone. Right? But instead, we do things like Give them weed whackers. <laughs> Women get chocolate, flour, we get weed whackers. I mean, even the word itself, weed whacker. You know, it's like, what? So, yeah, Mother's Day, Father's Day. Anyway, we teach biblical fatherhood in the church, and sometimes it can be kind of tough. I had, a, I had a church member in one of my churches a while back in, in Southern California, Keith, and he, he came to me the week before Father's Day and said, you know what, I'm not coming next week. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He said, I don't know if I can stand one more beat up the dad's sermon. Right? Because there's this high calling for what a father's supposed to be. Biblically, you know, in Christ, what we're supposed to live up to and so forth. And raise your hand if you feel like you are the adequate father that lives up to everything that we're supposed to be as a dad, right? Oh, there's one. Sweet. Okay, we're going to have a class after you're teaching it. All right? And we're going to, it's going to be awesome. To figure that one out. So we have this sense of, of what God's called us to, and we know what we want to be and want to do, but man, it's just like, wow, how, how do I live up to this? And so we come in on Father's Day expecting the worst and getting it sometimes, and then we drag ourselves out of the worship service, you know, because we've been beat up so much. And anyway, we teach all of this stuff, and we hope and long for um, all that God intends for family. And, and, and so in the context of really important issues, pressing issues, the stuff that really matters in our life, I think, the stuff that maybe causes us to lay awake at night, um, or out of one conversation that I had with a guy in the park this week, or not in the park, it was at a party that we got invited to on our block, actually, already there on McAllister Street in the city. Um, I said, do you ever lay awake at night wondering if like, this thing of just trying to make sure you can pay all your bills makes any sense? He says, I don't lay awake at night. I fall asleep at night, but it's in the shower every morning that I ask that question. Why am I doing this? What is this rat race thing that we're doing? And so that's, that's us. And so, so, so here we are, raising our children to live with a singular focus and attempting to, um, to, to become children of the living Christ and um, wanting them to live and die for the same thing that Jesus lived and died for even, even if everything else, our family included, seems like it's unraveling. So I've summarized that focal point, that here's how we're going to raise our families, you guys, and let everything else kind of fall into its categories. Here's how, in one statement, and, and um, I, I hope you'll have it memorized by the time we're done today because we're going to say it so many different times. Here's the statement. What matters most is people finding Jesus. And I don't know if that resonates with your heart right now because I don't know you. Would you say it out loud with me one time? What matters most is people finding Jesus. Okay, let that sift a little bit. Let it, let it kind of sit and rest and resonate and bristle. Maybe stick somewhere you didn't want it to. So you might not agree. The truth is, is that all of us are on a different place in our journey, right? 
So spiritually speaking, most of us in the room have a spiritual bent to life, whether or not we've surrendered our heart to Jesus Christ. We probably wouldn't be in this room unless we really got dragged here today, like against our will, right? And somebody, that could be some of you, but a spiritual bent. We all have something there, and so you've decided how to approach that spirituality part of your heart and life and mind. And I'm making a pretty big claim here. We have beliefs, we have values, we have character that are shaping our decisions and our relationships. What I'm saying today is that our beliefs are the core of who we are. What it is that you believe unconsciously is actually has already formed who you are and how you act and the decisions you make and what you do and your reactions and responses, all of it. It's because of what you believe right now. And, and clearly 80% of what you believe you're not even conscious of. How many of you checked your chair before you sat in it today? Will it hold me up? You just believed unconsciously and you sat there. So, in other words, you might not believe in Jesus to the point of surrendering your life to follow him, and I get that. In fact, I'm comfortable with that, and I count it a privilege to be the guy that, that, that gets to invite you to consider this thing that we're talking about today as your next step on your spiritual journey. I guess all I'm doing is making an invitation to you, which I think was kind of Jesus-style, to modify your beliefs for the sake of finding everything that you've been looking for, and yet you've been left unsatisfied. And here's why. I think that's why. Okay, Wherever we are in this moment, perfect place to take the next step in finding Jesus. It's the most important thing. Finding. And I use the word ing, the, the, the suffix ing on purpose. It's a process. And even if we are among those who would say, no, I found him, or he found me, depending on your theology, it, you are still ing. You're still finding, because there's so much more of him to be found out, right? Every time we find something, most of us are more aware that there's even more that we weren't aware of that we haven't yet found. And so we're finding and finding, and I love the ing of life. It's a, a beautiful thing. So the men who wrote an account of the life of Jesus in the four Gospels, uh, as you may know, compiled their thoughts and their chosen stories and put them in an order for a reason. They were trying to make a point, and they set them in a context so we would sense a flow of thought that depicted the very heart of the Gospel, the Gospel message that they were trying to emphasize, the heart of King Jesus. So if you brought a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 14, and let's start there. Luke 14. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, by the way, we have one for you to use here today, am I right? And there's one being passed out right now. And so raise your hand, you can get one, passing those out. And I think I even heard that if you don't have a Bible and want it, it's yours, you can take it home, call it your own. Did I hear that last week? Yeah, we got, I'm right there, baby, flowing. Luke 14, crazy, crazy passage of Scripture. There's just something good about hearing the pages of Scripture turn like that. Thank you. It's good to see it ourselves. Now, I hope that you'll spend time reading the entire context of Luke 14. In fact, there's three passages. We're going to look at one in Matthew and one in Mark as well. I'm going to only read you a couple of verses from Luke 14, 25 to 35, but that's your context. And you'll understand why I'm saying this is crazy stuff after I read it. You read it. Maybe you already have. Here it is, verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Should we let that sit for a minute? 
what in the world is he saying to us? So large crowds became small groups. Very quickly, we don't like to hear this stuff, do we? We're not sure we want to follow something like that. It occurred to me that this Bible reading thing, this being a follower of Jesus thing is not like the drive through lane at Dairy Queen. That's not what it's like. So I feel the need to pray as we head into this. I want to do that again. Andrew prayed for me. I appreciate that. Let's pray again. Maybe you feel like it too. Father, I am grateful that you are the God of the universe and a God of love and a God of greatness and a God of intervention. You have come and dwelt among us and we beheld your grace and truth and here is a truth that doesn't feel gracious in any way. And so as we wrap our minds around this and get a sense of your heart in this, I pray that you would deliver us and liberate us and let us find the freedom of what it means to be fully devoted and surrendered like we sang. You invite us gently to our knees before you, wholly surrendered, I pray. That's what we would do today as we contemplate these very harsh words. Thank you, Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. So seriously, I'm saying seriously, Jesus, come on, what are you... What are you doing to us right now? Hate your mother and your father and your wife and your kids and everybody in your life? I mean, we're trying to do a sermon series on loving our families here. Hate? Strong word. Wasn't there a different one? You know, I was taught in seminary not to just use shock value illustrations. Is that what Jesus was doing? Just pure shock value? And I don't think that's the case. I think he was making a very important point. But I'm thinking, Jesus, now you've done it. I mean, this is it, and I don't know what to do with this. Do do we read this and take it at face value? And by the way, if the Luke passage isn't enough, how about Matthew 10? Look at Matthew 10. If you want to turn there, see it. I think we've got it on the screen too, don't we? Matthew 10, again, the context is 34 to 39. (coughs) But I'm going to read one verse out of the middle just to get the flavor again. Here it is. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Time for self-evaluation, right? And where our love is, where our loyalty is, where our devotion is, where our emotion is, our passion is. And then turn to Mark chapter 10, because I want you to see it again. We're not making this stuff up. This isn't an isolated passage that came out of nowhere. This is gospel writers who talked with, witnessed themselves, or spoke with those who were present when Jesus said it. And they decided to present it. Three out of the four. John didn't, but the other three did. And so here they are. And they thought this was important stuff. And so in Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 29, let me read there. By the way, this whole context is that when that guy came up and said, Jesus, I want to know what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven. He said, well, sell everything and give it away and follow me. And he said, obey the commands is what he started. And he said, obey the commands. He said, I did all of that. And then he said, okay, now you've got to sell your stuff. There's just one thing you have left. Sell all your stuff. Follow me. And the, and the man walked away dejected. He wasn't, you know, maybe he wasn't ready. Some scholars actually think that, in fact, he was dejected, but he actually went and sold everything and followed Jesus, too. So that's another conversation. But we come into the context there at verse 28, and Peter says to Jesus, Behold, we have, we have left everything and followed you. And then Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. 
but many who are first will be last, and the last first. So we are introduced to the reversal in Jesus' kingdom thinking. He wants us to turn upside on our head and think the opposite of what comes naturally to us. Doesn't he? So often. To have, you give. To be first, you make yourself last. Right? To truly live, you must die to yourself. Crazy stuff. Not, not the message of our world. So now, being a kingdom family, a kingdom first family, is to live and die on mission for those who came, who Jesus came to redeem. Now, a great way of allowing this, to, this way of life to permeate our own beliefs, our mind, and, and then our heart, is to tell ourselves this truth. What matters most is people finding Jesus all day long, every day, all week, until finally you start seeing its effect on the way you perceive stuff that comes your way. Things that happen, conflicts and normalcy and routine and unexpected and work and family and games and shopping, whatever it might be. And, and I hope to invite you into this focused purpose for your marriage and your family that is larger than any of you because every marriage and family needs something larger than itself that exists outside of itself and higher than it or it will implode upon itself. And this is what I'm offering to you today. We've been told for three or four generations now, careful here, that we are supposed to focus on the family. And we did, didn't we? Oh my, we got good at that. On the one hand, I get it because the Bible is clear on the priority of blood relationships, right? Worse are you than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your own family, the Bible says, right? And, and we are to disciple our own children first. And by the way, if you want to be a leader in the church, then you have to be a good manager of your own household first. Right? So those scriptures are pertinent in this context. But what I'm offering today is the higher reason why we do those things. What is Jesus saying? What's he emphasizing? To what is he calling us? So let me just quickly share with you three truths coming out of those three passages that we read together okay so here it is first of all number one from from the from our reading in, in in the gospel of matthew here's the truth to believe kingdom living might cost you your family and here we are talking about like investing in our family and pouring our life into our family we're in a family series we're gonna figure out how to highlight the family and pedestalize the family no in fact kingdom living might cost you your family it's a funny first point to make in the context of this series but if you're going to win your family then you might have to lose your family in order for you to gain Christ so that you have him to give away to your family. Follow that? What matters most is people finding Jesus. And along the way, there's stuff that's hard, it doesn't make sense, it's difficult, it, it, it seems like the end, it, it's sin, it's brokenness, it's all kinds of stuff, and you think you failed, and yet it moves us unknowingly when we're committed to the kingdom first toward becoming a kingdom-first family. So love for Jesus cannot be overshadowed by family love, as unsentimental as that sounds. Our earthly families are temporary, and they're only enjoyed on this side of eternity. The church family is forever. He is the groom. We are the bride. And by the way, that is the only marriage made in heaven. All the rest of our marriages are being lived out right down here on earth. Some of them feel like they're already in hell. Depends on the day. Right? 
So to live for the kingdom might cost you your family. By the way, you know that some in their initial surrender to Christ, in fact, did lose their family. And that could even be some of you in this room. The commitment you made to Christ actually cost you something relationally. That hurts. That's huge. So this radical change might be more than you could have imagined, but if Jesus' call on your life includes holding loosely all of your loved ones, then a moment of decision might be facing you. So that's Matthew. Kingdom living might cost you your family. Now the passage in, in Luke, in Luke 14, and our reading there, here's the truth to believe from that one. Kingdom living is not part of life. It is life itself. Kingdom living is not part of life. It is life itself. Why? This is a trick question. Why? Because, say it with me, what matters most? Okay, we'll start over. Because what matters most is people finding Jesus. That's why kingdom living can't be a part of life, but has to be life itself. Because it's what matters most. So often we attempt to tack stuff on, don't we? We add another dimension. We put another something-something into our schedule, and then we call it living with balance. So we're all trying to live the balanced Christian life. Um, I just might attack several of your, you know, like, traditional kind of thought processes and so forth, but here's something I'd like you to chew on a little bit. Jesus never lived, nor did he teach, that we should live a balanced life. You read the Gospels and find it. It's not there. You know what Jesus lived? A focused life. A focused life, right? He put his hand to the plow, and he plowed until he died. Literally. Did he not? Focused on the kingdom, right? Kingdom is near. Kingdom is among you. Preach the kingdom of God. Because it's the kingdom of God that matters. Not this kingdom. Small k. Right? So as long as you see life in Christ as one course of a five-course meal, you will make it the dessert that, yeah, it's kind of tasty from time to time, but I'm better off without it because of the complications that result from eating too much dessert. And all of a sudden it gets left out. It's not the one you want. It's not the one you eat. It is the very sustenance of life, of the life of a truly devoted follower of Jesus. Kingdom living is life itself. The kingdom comes first because what matters most is people finding Jesus. So then thirdly, from our reading in the Gospel of Mark, here's the truth to believe. You will be rewarded for true kingdom living, but it will be painful. There will be loss. There will be sacrifices. In some cases, it could even be physical. We don't know a lot of this here in this country yet, but the day is coming. So here's where I lose some of you. You'll be rewarded for kingdom living. That's cool. Okay, the line forms over here for the people that want rewards. But first, it will be painful. The line forms over here for people that want pain. Now, our passage used the word persecution, right? And that, that's a fascinating word, and we throw it around way too easy. We talk about the cross we have to bear because our wife snores, because I have an allergy, because my, my husband leaves his underwear laying around the house, right? Or here's the best one of all. I've got to bear my cross. It's like my cross to bear. It's like you live in a neighborhood where there's like this one stinking, annoying neighbor, right, who's bugging everybody, and it's just like, man, this neighborhood would be great if it wasn't for that guy. You work somewhere in a cubicle or a whatever with some people, and it's just our boss, how about that, who's oppressive and just disrespectful in every way? I mean, 
You can hardly stand going to work because of that jerk, right? Ah, hate that guy, right? A team scenario, like you're mad at the coach because he's not playing your kid, right? Whatever, and you can, I, you, people, ah, right? Okay, but wait a second. What matters most is people finding Jesus, and he has you, Jesus has you, right there. Okay, so that is not your persecution. That's my point. You got a hard life, that's designed for you to be right there immersed among those very people because you're the one that gets to reach them. No one else can. I'm not there. Andrew's not there. Your best friend's not there. You are there and loving and praying and living and it's all about the kingdom. That's not your persecution. You see, the truth is, is that this persecution thing had everything to do with living for the sake of the gospel and suffering physically for that. And anything else is not persecution, biblically speaking. Everything else is just kind of tough situations and the reality of what people are. And By the way, you're that guy for somebody at work, right? So there you have that. I think it's really refreshing sometimes to hear what we play off and kind of try to overlook and you know I mean you know what you know what's, to, you know what's true about life life is hard life is difficult it, I mean it doesn't go right all the time and, and it's and it, at the core level heart level I think it, it resonates with our heart that, to say yeah you know what life is supposed to be painful there's the line and, and that's okay if life is painful sometimes in fact a couple of weeks ago we sang a song a really fun song um, you might remember it the, the, the lyrics are true at some really deep level. They're very true theologically to very deep what Christ has done to solve every problem level. But in the reality of life level, it just doesn't ring true, right? Do you remember, do you remember the song? I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness. No more night. Now I'm so happy. No sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord! I saw the light, right? cannot get it deeply, Jesus has solved every one of my deepest needs, right? And so that's incredibly true. I have a form of happiness that no one can take away from me. I am no longer in the darkness. I'm in the light, right? So at a very profound level, it's true, but at a circumstantial level, that is not where we're living. I am not happy a lot of the time. Anybody else with me on that? My, in fact, my fallback emotion, if you knew me, my fallback emotion is sad. Because, you know, if Christians are happy, well, then they must not be very mature. And not a very, you know, an immature Christian, well, that, that's not acceptable. So that makes me sad. And so now I'm comfortable with my life again. I'm sad. Right? Or if I get angry, you know, if I, anger, well, that's sinful. You can't be angry, so that's terrible. So don't be angry. And I cooperate with that. It makes me sad that I'm angry. So now I can just be sad again. See? So my fallback emotion is sadness it's not this happiness thing a few melancholics in the room that get that so here's the light we need to see the kingdom comes first only kingdom first families will possess the purpose needed to continue to face the realities of the pain of life no matter what may come any form or extreme of pain faced you remind yourself of this truth the truth of the gospel message then no matter what those conditions are you know that in this situation in this condition in this conflict in this crisis what matters most is people finding jesus 
me finding more of Him in it, and perhaps this individual who's perishing for real, finding Jesus. That's what matters here and now. Not the money I'm losing. Okay? Not the position or prestige that's being attacked. Not my self-respect or reputation. That doesn't matter most. People finding Jesus matters most right now in this situation. So life-giving families know that people are the premium and the kingdom must come first, but it will be costly. In fact, it's a total reorientation, but it's fascinating how it can come so easily. Just by the meditation upon and then actually the core belief in this idea that what matters most is people finding Jesus. It, it changes everything we do, why we do it, how we do it, and all the downsides. Now, in, in the context in our Luke passage, he reveals that this potential kingdom laborer makes a calculated decision before he goes all in. Context is about building a building, and then he goes into the war thing. You know, a captain in war won't take his troops in until he's measured out whether his 10,000 can defeat the 20,000. Okay, that's the context in Luke 14. And, and so the same way, we, we've got to measure these things out and make a decision about whether I'm going to, you know, expose my children to everything or let them make their own decisions or, or, or whether I'm going I'm to teach them in, you know, very intentionally about, the, about faith in, in Jesus Christ. And all of, the, all of it's got to be incredibly intentional. Because beliefs are formed intentionally and with direction, and you are the most influential person in your child's life. In fact, you can have six months of Sunday school lessons in a row that are the highest quality, most pointed, perfectly illustrated Sunday school lessons ever, and they will be completely forgotten compared to one informal moment with, with dad. And that kid will grow up in 10 years, he'll tell the story as if dad had said that to him every day for a period of 16 years. Because it's so struck. That's the power of family, by the way, right there, right? And that kind of family thing and that kind of impact can be experienced in a surrogate manner as well. And I tell you that by experience because of the broken family that I come from and the surrogate fathers that God supplied for me. The bottom line is that what matters most is people finding Jesus. And... Um, and this is what we're longing to be. So our Luke 14 passage ended this way in, in uh, verse 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good, but even, if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, salt is still salt, even if it has lost its potent chemical qualities. So, so it... it and I love this, this illustration. You know this is awesome. I mean, it's so wide and varying when Jesus picked salt because it's a, it's a, it has a seasoning effect, right? So that it creates appetite in people. And so when, when Jesus calls us to be the salt, we're, we're, we're the tasty ones in the community, right? We create an appetite in people's lives for Jesus. But, but salt also has a, a melting effect. Did you know that? So you live out here without snow. I just moved out here from Nebraska. Ice on the roads, ice on your walks, ice on your steps, and what do you use to melt it? Salt. The hard coldness of people's hearts, salt, will melt it. Are you the salt? You lost the saltiness? Salt is also a preservative. Did you know that? Before there was refrigeration, that's how we kept our meat for long enough not to get diseased by it. 
preserved it, packed it in salt. It's preservative. We're here on the planet as God's kingdom people to preserve this place at some level, right? That's why we care so much about the community and so much about the environment and so much about a lot of different kinds of things because we are here to tend the garden and care for all things so that we preserve it and create an atmosphere where, in fact, the gospel can be sown and rooted and life springs out of it. So we have a preservative effect. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful image, but when we lose our saltiness, thrown out. That's a scary thing for me because so many of us are just living as people who have lost our salt. A marriage is still a marriage, just like salt is still salt, even if it has no purpose outside of itself. A family is still a family, even if it's just living and dying to achieve a little of this and acquire a little of that and, and be reasonably well-adjusted and functional human beings, contributors to society. That's just not enough. That's too small of a thing. He calls us to be salty. His own decisive words for people who have chosen to be another of one of the millions of families that have lost their saltiness, people who get married, settle down, have children, work to survive, he says, you are not worthy of me. Ouch! Here, ouch. Kingdom first. Kingdom first family. What matters most is people finding Jesus. Now, just to give you a, a brief uh, illustration and introduction, and I, I, dang, I don't even want to do this now. Um, God has been incredibly gracious to us. I, I wanted to introduce our family to you just a little bit so you could get to know who we are, because we get to be here, and I'm the new guy, but you put me up in front. How sweet is that? So, so I, I grew up in Southern California in an incredibly broken home, okay? Seriously broken. I'll be transparent with you however you want, but, but, but it, 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 the result is that I'm a broken, broken man. My wife grew up in, on a dairy farm in Nebraska her whole life, and we met in college out in Nebraska um, where I went to play basketball. And so, so we were there, met, and we got married, and that's a whole other story, and then we had our first child nine months and two weeks after we were married, st still in college. He was two weeks late after the due date, by the way, too. So he was like a honeymoon night baby. How sweet is that? That's like family on steroids right there. That's what that is. That's like. So anyway, we had then all three of our kids at age 24. We were 24 years old, had all three of our kids. That's kind of backwards from what you guys do here in the Bay Area, right? A little, little bit against most of the wisdom and the stuff that people tell you you should do or don't do or whatever. So anyway, that, that's what we did. And, um, and we raised them to believe that, that we are far from perfect, we're incredibly broken, and we lived out lots of brokenness in our life and our family and lots of fun, and we had a lot, it was, life's been great, but, but it's been awful at a whole lot of times too. But we, we raised them to be kingdom kids, and what that meant is that they all grabbed a hold of this idea that what matters most is people finding Jesus. That's a more recent phrase for us, more like our adult kids, and that's when we started introducing, but we still live for that way back then, just didn't have that phrase for it yet. And so they've all grown up that way. So as a result, all of our kids, three of them, and their spouses, and our ten grandchildren can all tell you, if you ask them, so, so what matters the most? They'll tell you, every single one of them, all the way down. And they have been since they were two years old and could talk. People finding Jesus. People finding Jesus. It is our focusing mantra. And so, now, current day, 
for Judy and I. It's, it's a fascinating thing. See, by the way, you need to know this too about our kids. They're not freakish, okay? It's like I want to bring Emily up here and display her and show you how normal she is, right? And, and if, if you spend any time with her, how fun she is. And our kids are fun and they're homeowners and they're what? You can actually own a home in Nebraska. And so they're that. They do that, too. And we have one in Colorado. He's buying a home. He called me yesterday. He's buying a home. You know, that's crazy, right? No, a bunch of you, I know, yeah, whatever. So anyhow, these are great people, right? So now Judy and I, here we are in this weird season of our life. We've pastored in four churches, planted new churches along the way. Um, Judy has focused on youth ministry for the last 20 years and, and women's ministry to disciple other women. We've made friendships with people yet to believe as a way of life. That's our way of life, and now we've left everything to follow Jesus to the Bay Area, and some people think we're nuts. In fact, most people do. We left every stitch of family behind. We have three aging parents back in Nebraska, 80s and 90s, and we left them. Our kids, our grandkids, sisters, brothers, everybody. We're, further, we're as far away as we can get from them without leaving the country. And most people would say, hunker down, gather your chicks under your wings. That's what grandparents do. But maybe not, just maybe not. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe that's good too, but maybe not if what matters most is people finding Jesus. And that's why we're here. And by the way, we have already over 70 people on our, by name, praying and watching to see God draw them to the Savior. That we've already met, divine appointment after divine appointment after divine appointment. 70 people we're praying for by name already. We've only lived here for a week and a half. And that's the life that you can launch yourself into and the purpose you can give your children. And by the way, that's spiritual children if you don't got any physical ones of your own. And that's family. So we move out of a town of 2,400 people, agriculture farm town, to San Francisco. And it's Beta Breakers Day. Are you kidding me? I'm not even going to tell you what I already saw, just driving out of town. I'm not even going to, we can't bring that up here already, right? But everybody's already drinking, so you know where this is going. And you saw it on TV, maybe you've been there. So we leave a 4,200 square foot Victorian home. Four levels. And we live in 550 square feet in the city. It was liberating to get rid of all that stuff. Kingdom. Okay, none of you are going to do this, I know, and you know, that's not what I'm talking about, so let me distract you from the point. That's not the point. The point is, what matters most is people finding Jesus, and he wants you to believe that right where you are, right now. No changes. And it will radically affect your heart, and then, by osmosis, everybody else's heart around you. It is an incredible, beautiful, kingdom-first, kingdom-family way to live. So, I just want to teach you this really fast, okay? Well, man, there's most people finding Jesus. So if you have kids, you're going to go teach them that, that one sentence, and, and you're going to ask them to tell you all week long. And you're going to say, what matters most? People finding Jesus, they're back in the hall, you know, whatever. Okay, and you're going to reverse it, and you're going to go back and forth, and you're going to do that all week long with all your kids. Now, there's a second thing you're going to do, and I want you to try it this way, okay? I want you to think right now, in your mind, the name of one person that you know who you think you're pretty sure doesn't know Jesus. He hasn't surrendered, she hasn't surrendered her life to Jesus yet. Okay, can you think of one? Got a name? On a count of three, say the name out loud. One, two, three. Beautiful. Now think of three. 
We've done this with people in small group settings, and a couple people in the circle couldn't think of one. Now, part of that's living in the Bible Belt, right? And you guys don't <laughs> live there, <laughs> which is a beautiful thing, by the way. It's wonderful. Okay, so think of three now, because what I want to do is model for you what I want you to do in your home all week long, and that is to pray this prayer. The prayer just goes like this. God, send your Holy Spirit into the hearts of these people we're going to name and draw them to yourself and make them kingdom laborers. So see, it's the full thing. They don't only become believers, but they in fact become those that reach others also. And then you say their names out loud, one name at a time. This is how you do bedtime from now on, by the way. And your kids will never let you forget to pray this way. Because it means putting off bedtime a little bit longer, right? So your kids are discipling you now. How beautiful is that? Okay, so let's bow our heads. We're going to pray. And I'm going to invite you to say those names after I pray that prayer. Father, we are grateful for what you have done in our lives and for what you have given to us and the life we have in Jesus. But Lord, right now, we just want to ask you make this a part of our heart and a part of our life and all week long because we know that you believe that what matters most is people finding Jesus because, in fact, you sacrificed it all to be here. So, Lord, we ask then, as is your design and your heart and your will, align us with your will. Send your Holy Spirit into the hearts of these people we're going to name and draw them to yourself and make them kingdom laborers. Say those three names out loud. Amen.